going to talk this afternoon about um, management now that they're planted and harvesting. Um, and what you see here in this picture is, is that this is that large 1,200 acre blueberry farm we developed a few years back. Um, and these are two um, over the row spray machines that uh, they'll actually spray or in this case they're mowing. There's a mower behind each track. Um, so um, when you think about innovation and efficiency, this is uh, some of the work that we were doing. This was not something you could just go down to the egg dealer and buy. This was actually, the platform was made by a company in Oregon for a different purpose. And then the spray system was made by a different company. We had a different track system. We put it all together. So we actually got both manufacturers to put it together. Um, and you'll see it a little later on actually doing its spraying, but it's electrostatic, so it sends an electrical charge. So all of these things were brought about, you're forced to do because you're trying to figure out how to run more efficiently, efficiently to do more with less people, that kind of a thing. But um, you can pay those operators more because they are operating twice as much acreage. So normally that would take four people, um, and now you can do it with two people. That machine is used for more than just mowing. Um, they're expensive though, so you need a big farm. That's they're each they're three hundred thousand dollars each. They don't they're uh, mulching blade, so it's just going. You can see last pass the mulch is still there <laughs> from the last pass. I'll show you the. We'll get to that a little later. I just show you this because. This is the opportunities, there, there are opportunities in agriculture at all levels, all sizes. So there's homesteading and there's market gardening and then there's large scale agriculture. We had the head of our equipment um, management was an Adventist guy, um, him and his family, he was, he was a mechanic and worked out really well for us. Um, but we had, um, you can be, we were talking about this at lunch and I don't think people talk about this enough, but there's a huge amount of opportunities in agriculture. If you're interested in bugs and biology, we were hiring agronomists out of college with a four-year degree for 50,000 a year. You get a pickup truck, a computer, a phone, two weeks paid vacation, full healthcare benefits, and three or four years later, they're making 80,000 a year. So it's not a bad paying job. Accounting, you could do accounting and be in agriculture. We had five staff accountants, two of which were CPAs. Um, HR, we had two HR people. So the one gal uh, was interested in human resources and she worked doing safety. We had a person who was interested in food safety. That's all they did full time was manage the food safety program. So um, there's a lot of opportunity in agriculture and I don't really think we talk about it enough. One of the things that we felt like made us successful is we were trying to modernize the culture around agriculture and how people treated each other in agriculture. Um, the typical is dad or grandpa t tells everybody what to do and is kind of grouchy about it, right? This is a kind of the classic ag scene, at least from what I'm familiar with, the families around here. And everybody just does that and you either have to go out on your own or go get a different job if you want to farm. So we tried to create um, an atmosphere where everybody was learning. Um, we had English as a second language classes free to our staff. We 
took them to every ag conference. Uh, we would show up with, you know, truckloads of guys that would go and, and ladies that would go to ag conferences. So everybody was learning. We also mandated first right early on that the agronomists could not be the only ones doing the job. When you have 12 people on a farm team and you have one agronomist, that's one set of eyeballs looking at things. How often are you gonna see those plants? The guy on the mower should be the guy or the gal on the mower should be the person telling us there's a problem or scouting. So we gave everybody iPhones <laughs> and they started texting pictures to the agronomist. Hey, I found this in block such and such. I found this over here. Or you won't believe the saving, time savings when a harvester broke down, they took a picture of the part, texted to the head, of mecha the head mechanic person they ordered the part or got the part and we were able to show up with what you needed instead of show up, figure it out and then go and have a full de delay, day's delay. So probably doesn't matter to most of you, but I guess I wanted to share just a little bit that there's a huge room to advance the culture within agri agriculture. And um, so what you see here is actually my wife on the left. Um, she was really great at uh, team development and so she spent her time developing the teams we followed some similar per, um, thought processes that google did with their teams and how they managed them so we made people peer accountable instead of accountable to one person they were accountable to each other so they were uh, this was the general manager this was a regional manager these were farm managers another regional the head of equipment is right behind here and we started innovation teams so that they also we had somebody from accounting Somebody from HR, we had people, the, the irrigator, we had the, you know, the person driving the mower on this team. And what they did is they were tasked with thinking about how to save money on the farm and make everyone's life better on the farm. Think about it. You work more time on a, on a job than you do in any other activity in your life over your lifetime, at least in, except for sleeping, I, I, would, I guess, right? But... On farming, it's a lifestyle, and you're working um, in excess of 3,000 to 3,200 hours a year doing something. Um, it needs to be enjoyable. So this was one of those innovation team meetings um, that they were doing. Um, the education, we brought in experts. So each year we brought in experts from around the field and around the world to teach us about what they were learning about um, blueberry plants. It doesn't mean that you did what they were doing. It just means that you had opportunities to learn how people are doing things in different regions. Um, so this is a, a bunch of farm managers, regional manager, regional manager, and they're all learning about pruning. This was a, a pruning um, uh, education day. So anyway, just to give you some aspects of what we were doing as well. The, uh, when investors, we, raised two private equity funds over the course of the last like five years and what um, people are investing not in the land they're investing in the people it's my belief that we don't always know 10 years from now what will be growing but if we have good water and good soil and if we're always thinking about innovating or changing the way we do things um, you'll be growing something um, but you maybe it's not blueberries maybe people want uh, more cauliflower? I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> um, you'll have the opportunity to grow something and you'll be able to stay relevant, I guess is what I'm trying to um, 
get across here. So, okay, we're gonna jump into management irrigation. Blueberries need a uniform and adequate water supply from blossom to the end of harvest. It's great, moisture demands are greatest during fruit set. So harvest time as they're filling that fruit. I've seen a lot of farmers not expand, not increase their amount of um, water that they're applying during the uh, uh, fruit fill. It starts to turn blue and they're like, they get, you know, what is it, buck fever? They get like <laughs> crazy and they forget to continue to manage the basics and that fruit won't size um, or, or um, doesn't have the water content. And it can be as much as 20 to 25% by volume yield decrease because you didn't fill uh, that throughout the season. So it's really important that it's uniform. Um, this is important to remember. Those plants need to not be stressed in late July and August, even though the crop is coming off. That's when your fruit bud formation starts happening for the following season. So everything I do this year, as far as feeding the plant, is really growing the fruit for next year. The fruit that's on there right now is really from my activities I did last year. Um, so when we look at rehabilitating an old planting, um, I look at a three-year process to do that. Uh, it takes a while to get things stimulated, pruning and inputs. Um, plants need from one and a half to three inches of water a week. You want to. You don't want the tops of the of the soil to dry out, but you also don't want it to be too wet, and you don't want to be creating this big puddle of water down below. So, you're, someone's going to probably ask me how you do that. Well, huh, it's trial and error. A big part of it is trial and error. Um, how many of you ever uh, know that, like the plow test, where you, you you take a handful of soil and you squeeze it, and if it's shiny or um, you can basically, okay, you take a handful of soil, dig down about three to six inches, take a handful of soil, squeeze it in your hand. If water comes out, that's too much water. <laughs> if uh, it is, and this is not always so accurate because if you have a clay soil, this won't be quite as accurate. And if you have a sandy soil, it won't be quite as accurate. So there's a huge range in here. A lot of this is done by trial and error and feel. But the basics are, um, if it, if it uh, holds together and is kind of shiny, um, you've got really adequate water. If it holds together, but you, when you press it with your thumb and you break it, up, it breaks apart, but it doesn't fall to individual particles, you're getting close to that time when you need to start thinking about irrigating again. Um, it's complicated because it is. So it's really hard to explain. It's not. It's probably the easiest place to screw up because most of what we do is not really, when you're growing a crop, a lot of growing the crop is out of your control. It's in your control to plant it on time, to fertilize it and apply minerals and to water it. But the environment is taking care of so much of the rest of growing that crop that, um, anyway. It's, it's one of the challenging things. I don't know a better way to describe it for you, but tensiometers, yeah. And then we used a system out of by Hortel that we could have on our on our phones and tablets that um, showed us exactly what was happening. With, and that's commercial scale. That's what you need to do. Yeah. Um, 
they're expensive. But um, yeah, we had those, and then we also had our irrigation system set up on a global um, platform so that we could you could be anywhere in the world with an internet connection, log in, and start and stop pumps and change irrigation schedules. So we could match it with what was happening with the soil moisture sensors. Those were placed, we, I think we had three sensors. We had two on the width and we had three on depth. So we had five total plus we had humidity and temperature at the crop height where the fruit is. No, 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 every, every block. And then on that thousand acre, the 1200 acre farm, we had it on every block that had the same soil types. So as we moved across that farm and changed soil types, we would change and have them. So there were fields with no sensor, but they were the same soil type. And then, of course, you had, there was an irrigation crew of five people that managed the irrigation within that, just that farm. So um, you really want to avoid overwatering. Uh, that's the fastest way to kill your blueberries is to overwater them. Um, one way to tell if you've overwatered is if the roots aren't looking alive and healthy. If they're just brown and break off, then you've probably overwatered or underwatered them. <laughs> so, not per plant. We use again. We use 202.5 acre feet of water. So that's two and a half feet of water across every acre. Yeah. So somebody could probably Google what an acre foot of water, how many gallons that is. It's a lot. The 1,200 acre farm had three river sites, two reservoir sites, and I think it was six or seven wells. And we tied, um, we tied that whole system together. So we tied everything into the same main line and then we tied all the valves going out of that main line. That one had 58 different irrigation zones. They were all eight inch irrigation zones. We filtered, um, we filtered 4,500 gallons a minute on the one farm and 6,500 on the other farm. So it was, we were filtering, was that 13,000 gallons a minute to irrigate those farms? Um, yeah, that farm had five and a half miles of 15 inch main line that tied it through like an artery right up the center of that farm. And then everything branched off of that. Okay, so on a sandy farm, one of the farms was really sandy and we were watering um, six days a week, four hours per block. So every, every site got four hours of irrigation and that was running, that, each of those per acre, that was running 330 gallons a minute per acre for four hours. So that might tell you how many, how, that could tell you in one irrigation, if you did the math on that, so it'd be 330 times 60 times four, divided by the 1,320 plants per acre. That would tell you how many gallons per plant we were irrigating. That was a really sandy farm. We had another farm that wasn't quite as sandy, more what I call loam soil, and we irrigated that farm two to three times a week for two hours in total. We actually set the system up to do a burst where it would do 30 minutes, 30 minutes, but it would be four hours each block throughout a, the day, but it came around 30 minutes, 30 minutes, because it was that, again, we were trying to broaden that wetting pattern in drip irrigation. So we were trying to spread the water under that weed mat farther out so we could have more root area for it to take up, so. I feel like I'm not doing a great job here, but this is the big hard part about farming is that it's instinct and it's fuel and it's time and it's, it's 
killing a few things along the way, and it, yeah, sorry. There's a great article on the OSU website for home blueberry production. That's a really great article. I'd highly recommend reading that. It's, it is something that's, um, they do a really good job. So, yeah. You know, that's an interesting question. So people instantly want to like make it all an app on their phone, right? The best accounting I've seen was done by a little old lady who had it on legal pads. Every year it was a legal pad. And it was the, she could tell you how much her husband had spent on what size of bolt that he had bought that year. I mean, it was the best accounting I'd ever seen. So there's no excuse to not just getting out some paper and writing it down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, other than that, there's no like, there's no special software that we used. Um, Tend. For small farms, um, I really like this software called Tend. Uh, T-E-N-D, and I don't, I'm hoping they're still in business. Um, they were at, uh, they were at the Organic Farm Conference in California last year, and uh, I really liked that for small-scale farming. It was a great place to maybe keep all my records and stuff, but um, yeah, on a large scale, we have time cards. Everybody fills out a time card, what block they were working in, what they were doing, what farm, the time, all of that. So that feeds into the payroll, which then gives us reports on how much it costs us to, for weed control or how much it costs us to prune or spray or whatever. Um, and then all of our inputs are tracked in bulk and then um, allocated on a block basis, on a per acre basis. So if you bought $100,000 worth of fertilizer, we knew we spread it across 100 acres, that's that number. So that's how we were tracking that. And then um, every pallet that left the farm, which we'll get into in harvest, is um, has a pallet tag on it that's the variety, the time, the block, the crew that harvested it, um, because you have to have trace back. So within 30 minutes, anywhere in the world, you have to be able to trace back a clamshell of berries to where it was picked, who picked it, so you know and then all the other lots that were within that lot, so you can destroy them or get them off the shelf, that kind of a thing. So if I think that's what you're asking me. So fertilizer, um, we, we, did, we had about a half a dozen fertilizer trials going every year um, just because so many new fertilizer were coming out. I told you guys earlier in the morning that story about the guy the, why his fertilizer was so special is he was mixing it based on the the position of the moon or the cycle of the moon. So anyway, you get that a lot in organic farming. I'll tell you one more quick funny story is because we were buying we were buying hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of fertilizer every year, and I, I was at a conference and I was speaking and this guy comes up and he's got like a trench coat on, and he comes up and he's like Eric, you got to see this. I got the latest greatest stuff here, and he pulls open his trench coat. And there's literally like in, I don't know how, where do you buy a coat like this? There's vials, test tube vials in his pockets like this. And they were like yellow. And I'm like, what in the world? And he's like, he's like, this is um, some Amazon jungle bat guano. <laughs> Great, you know, put it back in the box and come to the farm. This is a, this is a, you know, ag conference that we're talking about this. But yeah. <sighs> It gets crazy out there. <laughs> Dry fertilizer is your cheapest source. Um, we were trying to provide our plants based on our soil test, because it's 
only based on our soil test, in full production, about 120 units of N each year. Make sure you catch the catch that units of N. So um, it could be 10%. Let's say it's a 10% nitrogen fertilizer, right? If you, you 10% of every pound is the actual unit of N that's in that fertilizer. So obviously a 50% nitrogen fertilizer would be much, could be cheaper, but it's also gonna have a lot more units of N per pound than a 10%, right? Most organic fertilizers like three, two and a half, three, 4%. So we're paying for all this bulk, trucking it everywhere and getting this much in out of it and it's really expensive. So something like feather meal, which is a dry fertilizer, has 13% nitrogen, most of it is. That's a high nitrogen for an organic fertilizer. It's gonna be cheaper to apply that than it's gonna to be to apply a 2.5% nitrogen fertilizer um, that maybe is liquefied or something. So um, animal compost is salty. Uh, you need to figure out how you're applying it. You know, are you going to apply it with a machine? Are you going to put it out by hand? Pelletizing, all of those things factor into how easy it is to use. Uh, and then we get into the liquids, which you can inject through the drip irrigation. But remember, if you don't have good management of your irrigation system, you're going to plug it up. And what a nightmare that is to have the irrigation system under the fabric plugged up in the middle of when you... Of course, it's not going to plug up in the wintertime. <laughs> it's going to plug up in August when I'm trying to harvest and all that fruit is sitting there and needs water. Um, there's a corn, uh, <laughs> there's a corn, they call it a corn steep, and it's a three, I think it's 3% nitrogen, corn and soya, and it, it literally smells like soy sauce, and it's black, and it's like, uh, it's out there, we were joking one day, that all we needed was, you know, some fresh rolls, you know, because we had the fish fertilizer around the corner, smelling liquid fish, and we had the, Soya bean steep thing, fermented soybeans here. And we, all we were missing was the tofu and the salad rolls. But um, fish can also be um, salty. And there's um, one variety does not like fish. I think it's Duke. Didn't really like fish fertilizer for some reason. Or it might be, it might have been, um, there's another variety that wasn't on my um, list here and I've forgotten the name. One or the other didn't really like it, so we ended up using um, uh, the uh, feather meal. For the home garden, uh, getting yourself some mushroom compost or um, some liquid fish fertilizer, some mushroom compost or something like that would be really ideal, even on a two or three acre farm. Um, if you could get yourself some crab shell, mushroom compost, and some... Uh, liquid fish fertilizer, you could, you could have a really, you know, that would be a good fertilizer program. Um, and again, you're looking for about between 80 and 120 units of nitrogen when they're mature. So when they're not, when they're young, you're only doing about 25 units. So all this is dependent upon soil types. So again, kind of need to work with somebody in your local area. But um, one of the products we really liked was this program by Wiser G is how we said it anyway. They were out of Seattle. It was a like a, a startup company, and they built this little digester they put in the back of stores, and eggs and meat and dairy and lettuce and zucchinis, everything left over in the store got put into this little digester, 
and then they took the liquid and concentrated it and we put it on our plants and it was the coolest thing ever because it would come from my local areas so imagine we're buying 4,000 gallons of this every other week <laughs> so we were a great offtake partner they called us um, for these kind of products it was expensive but really great idea I really um, thought this was a really good program you can get a gypsum burner out of California where you can burn gypsum and mix it into the irrigation water to add that calcium throughout the growing season. That's also a great idea for root rot. Um, you could even liquefy it if you wanted to and, and add it that way. Yeah, so compost is, they talk about compost having a half-life. Half of it's available this year, half, half of a half next year, half of a half of a half, and then pretty soon you run out of a half. But but I think it's the same with organic fertilizer. I think three years into it. So we went through a J curve. We converted 160 acres of mature blueberries to organic, certified organic. So start transition, yields come down, come down to the bottom. And then three years into it, we started coming back up. Year five, we hit 30,000 pounds, 32,000 pounds the acre, which in our area was not, the normal production in our area was like 15,000. So once you get out of that and get the system working right, get everything, the biology going, it, there are some crops that I think can do more organically than they can conventionally. And blueberries is one because they're really sensitive to fungicides, herbicides. Um, they, requ they require so much biology to happen to get fed and get watered. Not all crops are like that, but that's one that is. So. Okay, let's talk briefly about blackberries. Um, blackberries, so irrigating blackberries, and so raspberries would be similar to blueberries. They will be on your sandiest soil. They're gonna want water more often and not these deep drenchings. So you're gonna wanna keep them on the drier side, but so that's a lot closer water monitoring you're gonna be doing. Blackberries are pretty robust. You can water blackberries once a week, twice a week for like 12 hours. So, so blackberries is what we would water at night. Same with hazelnuts. We'll water them a long, deep set at night and then we'll water our blueberries during the day when, when a problem with blueberry irrigation, we could see it during the day. So um, just something we've done anyway. And typically you're growing your blackberries on heavier soils, so they're gonna hold water longer. They'll also go down, and we were, we were growing in this river bottom area where we could, you know, eight, 10 feet down was the water table. They were going down to that, and we had a thought at one point, you know, if these are five or six years old, these blackberries, do we really need to water because they're going down to the water? So that's one of the advantages with blackberries. Um, Blackberries don't care about salts. Um, you could you could fertilize them with um, you know chicken manure, chicken compost. Um, food safety regulations: you can't apply com compost is 90 days I think before harvest. So just keep that in mind. And untreated manure, which I would never do, regardless, is 120 days I think. So I I just wouldn't ever do it. You don't really want to be filling out your food safety paperwork and put that you put raw animal manure on the farm. I mean, it's just <laughs> not going to go well. But um, they're only typically about 75 units of N, so they're a lot less fertilizer than than a blueberry is. Another first, another uh, OSU 
um, professor is David Bryla, B-R-Y-L-A, I believe it is. And he does all of the best berry irrigation trial research. So if you wanted to dig deep into that, you could look at that, what he's done too, which might have some of those numbers. So this is that electrostatic sprayer. One thing we found in organic, so um, huh, uh, organic fungicides and insecticides are kind of like spraying water. Um, so many of them don't do anything, and, but you don't know it, but then you feel stupid if you didn't do something or didn't apply them. So um, we were trying to figure this out early on and how to scale up uh, berry production. And um, by the way, that's just water, so. I wasn't getting applied on. Maybe that's what happened here, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, the uh, electrostatic sprayer technology, so there's a um, electrical charge right here in this boom, these small booms, that posit positively charges the spray molecule as it leaves the nozzle. The plants are grounded, they're a negative, so this just attracts to it and it creates this fog and it surrounds it. So if you've ever seen a helicopter spray stuff, it creates this spray pattern that's like this, circles and so it's covering the top of the leaf and the bottom of the leaf. A lot of the organic materials are not systemic, so they have no lasting effect. They have to contact with something to get it to work. And then we found that a lot of these we're using are biological, so we're trying to create a food source and environment where they'll latch onto the plant and then grow like this protective covering over the plant to keep it from bad pathogens from coming in and attaching to that leaf surface. That electrical charge stimulated these biological products more so than a conventional sprayer that has no electrostatic, no electrical charge. So we were getting a higher efficacy rate using these sprayers than a traditional spray system. Um, we uh, it's quite, it was quite phenomenal to, to be able to go to this uh, system and, and see that. So we had better sputter wing drosophila control than conventional farmers spraying organophosphates. Um, it, I think it was a number of factors and we'll get into that, but um, it does, I guess um, all I'm trying to say there is that it doesn't always require the biggest stick you have to, to you know, protect your crop, so. So bees are hugely important to um, blueberry production. Uh, and that's actually a blackberry on that side. So I got one blackberry photo in here for you all day, even though we've been talking about them. Um, bees are disrupted by anything on the blossom, even organic. So we always sprayed at night. Uh, we never sprayed during the day when they were out. Spraying water on the blossom during the day sends these guys somewhere else. So just be aware of that. We, we only sprayed at night. Um, uh, they're, and, and they're doing all the work. I mean, if without these guys, you really have no crop. You well, honey, honey, yeah, a honeybee is lazy and his tongue isn't long enough. And then goes right through the side here. Yeah, and that creates a disease, that can create a disease, that puncture creates an infection site for uh, fungus to get in here. So this, so the bumblebee just grabs a hold of it and shakes the daylights out of it. And uh, that it's, it, bumblebees are the most effective pollinator out there for blueberries. 
um, because of that problem right here. So these honeybees are definitely, um, I mean, you have to have them. We had four hives per acre. Um, so we had, we had hundreds of hives, but um, every year that we saw more bumblebees in the fields, we had higher yields. It's anecdotal, but that's how it was working. So this is that sprayer folded up on a truck um, to tr for transport. Um, on a home or on, on a homestead system, um, yeah, you're kind of limited to a solo backpack sprayer. It's kind of probably what you're limited to. Oregon Vineyard Supply has these. They put these out every year for growers that use their services. This is an organic spray program. And because, um, and we'll talk a little bit about some of these things because there are some of this we did and some of this we didn't do. Um, but again, I'm not prescribing anything. Uh, this is, uh, just want to be very clear. I'm not an agronomist and I'm not a certified crop advisor. So this, we put these programs together, but uh, I'm not advising you on anything. <laughs> okay, so in Feb February, we were doing a copper treatment and an oil, uh, horticultural oil treatment for scale. So if you have it, you, we were spraying for these things. If you don't have it, and this is where we get into, we'll talk a little bit about mummyberry, um, which is a big problem in the, these wetter climates here. Do you have mummyberry? Okay, everybody has mummyberry, yeah. I've seen 75% crop loss with mummyberry. It basically turns the blueberry into what looks like a little blue pumpkin. I put extra in on in the early year. In the first year of planting, I put quite a bit extra, and then after that, it's kind of just creating its own little composting system down there. Yeah. And you wouldn't have to use sawdust. You could like use a 50-50 sawdust and compost blend if, you know, like, I mean, use what you have around you. Well, within reason, but <laughs> yeah. no cedar or walnut. But, but yeah, grass prunings, if you compost them will work, you know, cause you gotta get them, they're so green, they're so hot, they'll burn stuff too. So, but yeah, if you, grass cuttings will work. Blackberries actually love alfalfa meal. You can, you can grow a whole blackberry crop with just alfalfa meal. That's I was shared that earlier. One of the researchers at OSU was doing it with alfalfa hay. He was just laying the flakes, like four inches, down along the bottom of the blackberries. And his blackberries, like looking down the road, there was less canes, but there was the same amount of fruit. Yeah, so less work pruning and tying up canes, same amount of fruit. Um, blackberries are in the rose family, and one of the best fertilizers for roses, best blooms I've ever seen, comes from came from just fertilizing them with alfalfa meal. That's it, pelleted. I just go to the feed store and buy pelleted alfalfa pellets for a horse and throw them around the roses, and it was the best rose blooms I've ever seen, so. Yeah, in fact, that came from a horticulturist who worked at some big, like, public garden said that to me. And blackberries are in the same family. Okay, winter time, um, Pseudomonas, which is a fungal disease. Um, we're spraying copper, Bordeaux mixes. Um, I don't worry about these things on a small scale, like on a homestead scale. I don't really worry about most of these things. The only thing I would worry about on a homestead scale would be the spotted wing drosophila, because that's really not fun to bite into and see that little tiny maggot going around inside the blueberry, you know? The best thing you do there is freeze them and then throw them in smoothies. And it's just how, it's how vegan, 
It's how vegans get protein. <laughs> and you can't taste it anyway. If you put enough ginger in with your smoothie, you won't be able to taste it. March is another Pseudomonas application. Um, soil fertility starts in um, April, and your, of course your weed control starts there. Um, for mummyberry, mummyberry gets you two ways. The mummyberry goes on into the ground, and then the next spring forms this pustule, or what do they call it? It, it sporulates, comes up, and then that shoots up and gets on the new green growing tip, okay? And then that has another release, which gets on the fruit. And that's how that, that mummy, you know, shrinks down. So what, we're, what we tried to do was, and it was pretty effective, we had a field that got mummyberry pretty badly. We sprayed lime sulfur to burn off those pustules, or those um, spores that come up, those fruiting bodies that come up in the spring. The other way you can do it is you could, on a small scale, you could bury. They said it only takes, I think, two or three inches to bury all of them, and they can't come through. Got to do it. But it takes one of those fruiting bodies to, like, infect the whole place. So you only need one that comes through. And it can come through in the crown of the blueberry plant, okay? So you could mound sawdust up. Four, four inches deep and you probably suffocate them they won't come through but you've got to do it in a big enough area you know wherever they've been because they're kind of it's they come up they fruit it's windborne the second time to protect them is that green shoot tip and so we were using biologicals to to do that um after cleaning it up with like a bordeaux like a lime sulfur or copper spray just prior to um, shoot elongation which is where that bud comes out, breaks out of there. So we would be spraying those to make sure they're clean, but nothing's out there hanging around. And then we would keep them coated with um, this uh, new film pea, which is actually like a pine pitch um, product. And it's just coating it so that when in that thing fruits, it, it can't attach to it. You know, it's got a barrier. The other one was um, Serenade is an organic fungicide. And um, oh, I'm forgetting the other name here. Um, this regalia, which was a plant growth regulator, that was also for fungal diseases. And jet ag, so jet ag is a peroxide. It's actually like a three or four percent, or might be higher. Maybe it's a twenty percent peroxide, hydrogen peroxide. Um, we also found in spotted wing drosophila, drosophila control, there was this theory this guy thought about thought up that they could smell the fruit or they could sense that there was fruit in this field. And the hydrogen peroxide killed that smell. And there's no, uh, there was very, I think it's only like, it has to dry before you can pre-harvest. So there's no pre-harvest interval. And it's, um, it will kill the bugs on contact but um, it doesn't have any lasting effect on anything else. So they were using that after a rain event to kill any fungus that might have come in with that rain or be moving around in the field. And it also worked later in the season for spotted wing drosophila control. So um, the other thing for insect control was we were doing was um, 
in trust. And that's a spinosad, so it's a bi biological, and it worked really well, but it, you can only use so many ounces a year, and the SWD, or spotted wing drosophila, is around forever. So it's, it's a huge, long spray season. We found the most effective is the scouting. So above, I think it's 92 degrees, they can't reproduce. They can't lay eggs. So above that temperature, we're not having any new impact or infection. So they'll, they sting the blueberry and lay their egg inside, and then this little tiny white maggot crawls around and ruins the inside of your blueberry. And uh, above like 92, they, they, they don't do that. And then if it's freezing out in the wintertime, so you're killing them in the wintertime, they'll come out in the spring. You're really only trying to protect the blueberries when they're turning blue. Just as they turn blue, they become susceptible. They become soft enough that they can penetrate them just before that. So as they're just blushing, that's when you're out there starting to protect. Um, summertime, so we were doing these scouting programs and cut our spray programs in half. So it's really, you can also mass trap on a small scale. You can mass trap with um, uh, apple cider vinegar. And there's a trap, if you go on OSU's website, there was a lady that did the home gardening, homesteading kind of course, and she developed this design for traps out of like red solo cups or, I mean, it was just something like that. They punched holes in them, they put apple cider in there, they fill them with bugs, you go through your field, dump them out, and it was so many traps per feet of row, but that was a really effective way. If you're in a hot, dry climate, you probably won't have near the issues that we have in humid or you know, wet climates like we have here. So if you're on the east side here in eastern Oregon, Washington, parts of Idaho, it's so cold in the wintertime, you just won't have the same problems. Um, spotted wing Drosophila really loves raspberries. They're like high on their list. So it's like cherries, red raspberries, blackberries, and then blueberries. And then you get into like, well, you still have like peaches and things like that. They really get into that stuff. They don't so much get into apples around here, um, but they can. Uh, blackberries for sprays, we spray them just prior to bloom with our Bordeaux mix, which is a copper and uh, sulfur, I think, lime sulfur, uh, to clean them up, make sure there isn't anything out there. Then we, say, we did the same thing with, um, we kind of almost have the same spray program through the bloom season as we do with blueberries to prevent any uh, diseases getting into the, to the blueberries. There is not red, red spider mite, red berry mite is the big problem in, in uh, uh, blackberries and crown borer. And I think the east coast, coast or the, in your area, you've got a couple more, you've got some more pests. Yeah, and disease, yeah, the, the more humid your clint gets. But the red spider mite is killed by sulfur and also killed by taking out the canes right after the, that boring um, bug. You can take them out of the cane. If you're looking at the canes, you can cut those out and burn them, and that'll kill those. It's a pretty decent way to eradicate them. Um, trying to think else. Raspberry, blackberry, blueberry, the bloom spray program for disease is all about the same. So The next section we'll get into uh, weed control. So uh, that edge of that fabric strip um, was a big problem for weeds growing up. You can kind of see it in the back corner there, right behind his tire, those weeds are growing up the edge of that fabric. Um, so any, any foreign body in blueberries, when you pick those, is a, that's a problem. So there's a, so we had one year we had a, hatch of ladybugs. Ladybugs are great, right? 
we had hundreds of thousands of ladybug larvae lat hatch and latch onto the calyx of the blueberry in that was it pupa stage or whatever where they look like a little dragon and uh, they were like this so i had to wait five days to harvest those blueberries in that field for them to leave the other one was spiders we got called we got <laughs> we had a problem with we were picking juice stock and it goes into 55 gallon drums when they cracked that out the next winter they found this ball of spiders in the middle of it because organic farm Spiders were running out crazy, killing bugs. And, but yeah, so weed seeds are an issue. Like you can't, you know, it'd be nice to let the weeds grow but, uh, and go to seed, but those getting into or floating onto the blueberries is a problem, so. Um, we uh, built this as a way to take care of the edges of the fabric and mow the center of that row in one pass. You could easily do this with a John Deere riding lawnmower. And actually now, because um, this thing, this has a, it has a hydraulic um, PTO driven auxiliary pump in the back to run the hydraulic motors on these heads. And, uh, and then it has a center drive PTO for this deck mower in the middle. But that whole system costs 45000 We found out we could buy zero turn commercial grade lawn mowers for $10,000 and then just run the daylights out of them before, I mean, they, we just run them until they wear out and then we buy another one. Um, and we, we can use one on a 100-acre farm. So um, you just, on a John Deere riding lawnmower, if it has a side discharge, you just go get a mulching blade kit for it. So it just pushes it straight down. And then ride that other side on the fabric on this side. Just bump it on that edge and then come around and, and mow twice down the same row. So two acres, no problem. Five acres, you could do with a riding lawnmower. You'll wear it out, but... Yeah, the landscape supply company in Kaiser, Oregon sold me like 12. We bought like 12 of these things over the last few years. They're like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, oh, we mowed every week. We mowed almost every acre every week. So I figured out the acreage we were covering. Like we're the largest landscaper in Oregon, but um, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, the other way you can do it is um, a weed eater, but that'll tend to cut the fabric. I like the still came out with this um, weed, like grass scythe, and it's basically like a hedge trimmer, sickle bar, um, about like this. And you can get them for the combination like uh, weed eater. So it, you can take the attachments on and off. And then you can tilt that blade like this. You can just stand here, go right along the edge of that fabric, and it just scissors. You know, it's a sickle bar. So it just cuts everything off, it, things aren't flying all over the place. It works really well. And then you can just still use like a tractor. So you, if you already have a tractor, you can just use your mower, go down there and mow it, and then just take that sickle bar and go down and mow the edge of the fabric. Yeah, so if you don't have the, you know, the machines to do it how we did it, um, if you've got a cultivating tractor, anything to dig a small trench, put the edge of that fabric in it, and then push that dirt back into that trench. And then we actually used a RTV or a, one of these um, tractors with us softer tire and run along that edge to pack that down so it stays in the edge of that thing. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.